there's going to be a reckoning within Israel about a lot. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup is Liz Gilbert-Cohen. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party and alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign. And she has worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as the president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, it is wonderful to have you back. Great to see you. Thanks for having me, Ron. I'm really looking forward to our chat today. Also returning to the roundup is Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark served in the CIA for 26 years in operational field and leadership assignments across the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. He's an expert in counterterrorism, covert action, and human intelligence collection, and is the author of Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. We had a conversation about that on the podcast a while ago, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes in case you missed it. Mark... It's wonderful to see you. I've been looking forward to having your voice on everything that's happening in the world. So thanks for making some time today. It is, uh, it's great to be here. And I just realized something. You actually have two guests on here, both from New Jersey. That is where I grew up. Oh, I did not know you were from New Jersey. When in doubt, everything great <laughs> emanates from the Garden State. So let's go. Up first this week, we'll look at the rising violent anti-Semitism on college campuses and beyond. Then we'll discuss the heat Joe Biden is taking from within his party and his coalition. Then we're going to dive into the role Iran is playing in the conflict and how our foreign policy failures could destabilize the region further. Finally, we'll continue into Politicology Plus and discuss the third-term congressman from Minnesota who's challenging Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination and the shadow primary unfolding to become the nominee if Biden bows out. To join us for that conversation and get ad-free access to the show, plus lots more on a special private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of your show notes. On Tuesday, federal prosecutors filed charges against a Cornell University student who had threatened a violent rampage against Jewish students at the school. The student, Patrick Dye, published posts in which he threatened to kill and injure Jewish students at Cornell and shoot up the university's predominantly kosher dining hall. In one post, he wrote that he would bring an assault rifle to campus and shoot Jewish people. According to federal prosecutors, the posts were written under usernames referencing Hamas and pro-Palestinian and anti-Israeli slogans. Jewish students at Cooper Union, the small private college in downtown Manhattan, were locked in their library for about 20 minutes last week. The building staff decided to lock the doors as protesters outside pounded on the building doors and windows chanting Free Palestine and calling for a ceasefire in Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza. One of the students in the library characterized it as a pro-Palestinian protest that morphed into a pure anti-Jew rally. Quote, I felt hatred for my Jewish identity, she said. There's definitely a big difference between a pro-Palestine, anti-Israel rally and an anti-Jewish rally. And the more the day went on, the more it felt like an anti-Jewish rally. A Jewish student at Tulane University in New Orleans had his nose broken by pro-Hamas rioters on campus. The dean of the University of California Berkeley Law School wrote in an LA Times opinion piece that, quote, nothing has prepared him for the anti-Semitism he sees on college campuses now. On Monday, the Biden administration announced new actions aimed at combating this increase in anti-Semitism on college campuses, uh, Homeland Security, 
and justice have been working with state, local, campus, law enforcement to share information and resources. The White House also held a meeting with Jewish leaders about the spike in anti-Semitism on college campuses. These threats are part of a broader spike in anti-Semitic incidents since Hamas launched their horrific terrorist attack on October 7th. And since then, there's been a nearly 400% increase in anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. compared to last October. And about half of these incidents between October 7th and 23rd were directly linked to the war. That's according to the ADL, Center on Extremism. So, Liz, I want to start with you. I gave a brief overview of a handful of incidents that do not even really capture the picture that we're seeing play out, not just in the United States, but across the Western world. So wide open question, what's been your reaction to what you're seeing happening on campuses? Yeah, uh, totally wide open there, Ron. <laughs> um, look, it's it's something that, it, it's a topic I'm going to ease into because I, I know how quickly it can spiral when you are going from just stating, here are the things I have seen, to stating, here are the things that I have felt. As someone who graduated from a large public university, the University of Wisconsin, which has seen a lot of this, uh, what I will call chaos, um, I am also uh, Jewish. I am a moderate Democrat. I am a millennial. I mean, there are a lot of identifiers for me personally that I just would like to say at the forefront, um, you know, as, as I'm answering this question. Look, I I couldn't agree more with the quote, and I hope I get it right, that you just share that there is a a difference that is totally being lost in this discourse, that you can be pro-Palestinian and anti-Hamas. You can be pro-Israel and anti-the Israeli government. I mean, these are really fundamental key points that are being lost when you have people inciting violence, especially around young scholars across these campuses, you know, around the country and, and around the world, like you said. The fact that any student, okay, no matter where you are, any student going to school of any age, of any background, if you do not feel safe, your school is failing you. Everyone has the right to feel safe on their campuses. And this waffling, this going back and forth between what is free speech versus hate speech, and at what point do our, let's call them our elders, so our university and school leadership, at what point do they step into these discussions? I have seen some universities, you know, get this really right, and some totally miss the ball because you do not understand based on the fact, I mean, the numbers you're sharing, Ron, are, are astronomical. Anti-Semitism up 400%. I mean, no one can comprehend what that looks like. I shared with you yesterday when we were speaking that um, friends of mine in Park City, Utah, small ski town, okay, Park City, Utah, having a swastika drawn into the snow frost on top of their car when there's no identifier that it is a car of a Jewish person. I mean, we're seeing this everywhere and in lots of different ways. We're seeing it in extremely passive ways. We're seeing it in extremely violent ways. 
And unfortunately for me, and again, I gave all of my identification, but unfortunately for me, I'm having the conversation with my friends of, I knew people didn't like the Jews. I did not understand there was this full-fledged hatred of the Jewish people. And so for me, I'm seeing A, a lot of that, and B, I am unfortunately seeing a lot of confusion between what it means to be pro-Palestinian or pro-Palestinian sovereignty or right to self-governance and being anti-Hamas. And that's where I would love to keep the discussion. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to dig into what's been happening in the rest of the world, Mark, but before we do, I'm curious about your reaction on, on college campuses and, and how you've been reading this particular, um, development. Well, I went to Cornell, you know, when I, when I talked to my friends, uh, who are part of that alumni network, you know, I'm in my mid fifties now, so they are part of the, I certainly am not part of the wealthy alumni network, but they are, and they are furious. Uh, they have a lot of, uh, their kids are actually going to Cornell now, Cornell now, and most of them, frankly, are Jewish. And so they are horrified because, you know, you would think that a, a university that essentially is 20% made up 20% uh, a, a Jewish population would, would be a place where there would be safe spaces. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that I've heard the criticism and, and, you know, the whole idea of kind of wokeism, this drives me nuts. And my, a lot of my friends have criticized Cornell for what they have become in it being a very woke university. But the bottom line is there, there's a hypocrisy there because what they're telling me, and, and, you know, again, this is getting quite controversial, you know, they make so many, um, uh, not accommodations, but it's so, you know, there's so much to be said or, or can't be said about any other group. But when it comes to Jews, criticism, not in the form of, of you know, being, you know, against, you know, civilian casualties, which everyone is kind of is, is grieving over, but blatant anti-Semitism seems to be allowed on campus. And I think that it's, it's tragic. And I was thinking about this today and I'll throw this out there. It's, it's, it's actually a, a subject which um, I think certainly deserves a deep dive. But uh, I talked to my kids and, you know, they're 21 and 23. And so where do you think they get their information from? They get it from one medium and one medium only, and that's TikTok. And when you take a look at <clears throat> the TikTok platform, it is preponderance, you know, a huge preponderance of, and I'm going to say pro-Palestinian, and that sounds silly, but um, but it's it is you know very one-sided in in condemning uh, Israel and you know really blatant anti-Semitism. And so, are we surprised that the youth of this country uh, have changed so much when TikTok is the only medium in which they get their news? And I was kind of pondering, thinking about this the other day, and even how to address this is, you know, when I go and do my, you know, my media hits, because I think that, you know, when it comes down to it, uh, uh, you know, the, the, you know, younger generation, Generation Z, um, you know, has bought into this kind of narrative that, you know, Israel is a colonial occupier. And, and, and so it's, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but it's, this is, it's terrible what's happening. And, um, and I, and I do think these university presidents really have to do some soul searching because there's, there's not safe spaces for students and particularly for Jewish students. And I think that's reprehensible. Yeah, there, this is something that, uh, I've been doing a lot of work on and even on the podcast with some recent conversations with Yasha Monk, who's traced the origins of what he calls the identity synthesis, um, you know, uh, less, less generously known as wokeism. Um, on on college campuses and then exiting from college campuses into mainstream cultural institutions, and 
And if you if you if you take the time to really understand it, what we're seeing right now isn't uh, isn't an anomaly. It's perfectly predictable by the ideology that has been um, that has been allowed to foster and and escape the ivory tower. Ron, sorry, since you just said ivory tower, it actually I, I want to bring up um, one article. This is from earlier uh, this week, October the thirtieth, in the Times. It was a guest um, opinion essay that was jointly written by the dean of the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, and also the dean of Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Um, one of the deans comes from a Palestinian family; the other um, Israeli. And they wrote this jointly and specifically used the phrase, universities should not retreat into their ivory towers because the discourse has gotten toxic. On the contrary, the discourse will get more toxic if universities pull back. And I've, you know, I was sent this article by my sister, um, professor at Northwestern University, who I know has been on the podcast. And Danny Gilbert. You know, I've... That's the one, the one and only. And um, you know, we've we've been talking about this a lot because she is on a college campus as a professor of political science. And I I have been able to ask her, you know, firsthand, what are you seeing and experiencing and feeling? And so we've talked about what it means to be, you know, a, a Jewish professor of political science, you know, with these Gen Zers in your classroom. But on the other hand, more broadly, the conversation about what is the role of a dean of a school? How how do they participate? And so this this article that she sent me really struck me because it is the responsibility, you know, just like Mark was saying, you know, it, it is about not only having a safe space, a physical safe space, but to be able to talk and have this dialogue, you have to be able to do it. And so if our schools are taking away that opportunity for our students, what are we doing? I... I want to so last night Jonah Goldberg wrote this piece for the dispatch um that I thought was absolutely brilliant and we'll dig into some of the 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 more political implications of this in the next segment but I just want to quote from um from from this piece he writes there's ample room to criticize Israel for myriad things. There's no doubt that many campus progressives don't deserve to be tarred with guilt by association for what the Hamas apologists say or do. But the simple fact remains, if a decades-long project of zero tolerance for bigotry and bullying can produce such large numbers of bigots and bullies, that project is an utter failure. The virtue signalers cannot have a carve-out for violence against Jews, linguistic or literal and still claim that virtue is on their side. I, um, this, this piece, by the way, is titled The Mogification of the Left. And the central point was that on the left, there's a sizable group of people who have shown their outright hatred for Jewish people and their support for Hamas, explicit support for Hamas. And that an even greater number of people within the Democratic Party have been silent about it or have made allowances for it. And that the allowances for anti-Semitism and support for Hamas will fracture the Democratic Party, much like the allowances for the new right groups have paved the way for the MAGA takeover of the Republican Party. Um, but I, I just, I wanted to put that out there because it's first of all, it's a great piece. We'll link it. We'll link to it in the, in the show notes. Um, but it seems if you, if you're wondering why the moral world feels upside down right now in a lot of the media you're seeing, it's it, it's a direct consequence of. Of, of this ideology. So um, 
Is anything else we want to say on that front before we turn to the rest of the world? And then we'll get to politics. I wanted to play this clip from what happened in Russia as well. Just really quickly about that article, and I'm glad you'll link it. And thank you for sending it to me yesterday. And I hope, I really hope your listeners take the time to read it. There were a couple, I mean, there were so many quotes that I feel like I was firing off to you, Ron, but um, just again, specifically with the universities, um, there was a line that said a couple of years ago, Brandeis University's Prevention Advocacy and Resource Center declared that you can't say, quote, take a stab at. So like take a stab at getting your paper in on time um, because of the violence of the phrase. It also says those same people are, are telling you you can't say master bedroom, you know, because master is offensive. You have to say primary. And then yet on these campuses, right? And yet on these campuses, you have people saying gas the Jews and there's no, um, you know, yeah, no repercussion two, there. Two so. Jewish people on campus. <laughs> it, it's, um, yeah. So anyway, I hope people read that article. It really distills this down um, and, and it does bring it back to the college campuses, which I, which I think is very important right now. Yeah. Okay. So Mark, none of this is exclusive to the United States. Uh, on Sunday, there was an anti-Semitic mob in Russia's mostly Muslim region of Dagestan, uh, which stormed an airport where a flight from Israel had just arrived. The crowd outside the airport held signs that included, and when I say crowd, it really was a mob. We're going to play a clip in a minute of what this sounded like. Uh, they held signs that included slogans like, we are against Jewish refugees, and there is no place for child killers in Dagestan. The video from the airport is terrifying. The mob rushed onto the tarmac looking for Jewish people. Uh, passengers on other flights were told to get back on their planes when the mob rushed toward them as they disembarked. Uh, in one video, a pilot takes the speaker uh, to the aircraft saying that it's not safe to open the doors because the mob was below the plane and they believed they would get beaten if they opened the doors. Well, um, let's roll that clip actually. It looked like an angry lynch mob. I don't know how else to describe this. And if you think this is just a crowd of people chanting with signs, that's it. You're, you're not understanding the gravity of the situation. Hundreds of people flooded the terminal building, some carrying Palestinian flags in search of Jewish people outside. Riders surrounded cars, threatening passengers looking for Jewish people. At least 10 people were injured, two in critical condition. The airport was temporarily closed. Flights were diverted. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby compared this riot to the pogroms of the late 19th and 20th century. So what is going on in Russia? Um, so in Germany, we've seen a 240% increase in anti-Semitic incidents compared to last year. In the UK, jump is 689% in incidents. Um, and so I wonder, is... How do you read what's happening? And is Russia, should Russia be seen any differently from what we're seeing in, in Europe, in Western Europe? Well, you know, a couple of things on that. First of all, that was horrifying. And Admiral Kirby was right. You know, this goes back to the, the pogroms of, of you know, uh, uh, centuries ago. 
um, there's no doubt that anything that happens in Russia is certainly, you know, promulgated, supported, instigated by the security services. And so, you know, it, obviously, you know, Vladimir Putin um, and uh, and the Russian, you know, internal uh, service and external service as well is going to use this um, to kind of stir this kind of hatred. I mean, I think that you saw there was an article today, I believe, that uh, there was some arrests made um, at the, in Europe um, uh, of of individuals who were, you know, tied to to Russia, who were, you know, tearing down um, signs of, uh, of the hostages. And so, you know, the Russians are going to use this in their active measures campaign. That's what every Russian residency has probably been tasked with. But I think there's a bigger piece here, um, as you put this all together and, you know, you have to understand, you know, or you have to put yourself, and, and that's what I've tried to do a lot. And I, in all my commentary on this, put yourself, um, uh, in, in the shoes of an Israeli. And all this does is reinforce the notion which which many thought we had passed, um, but it's just the idea of, of of never again, and that you know that Jews don't have safe spaces anywhere except Israel. So, what in my mind, when you see you know uh, the anti-Semitic um, incidents happening, you know the increase I think in the United States is almost four hundred percent. Ron, as you noted, higher in other places. What happened in Russia? Um, uh, ironically, of course, you know, Bibi Netanyahu is trying to have this kind of cozy relationship with Putin, and that seems to have been, you know, wildly off. But, but ultimately, this is going to steal, harden Israeli resolve. Uh, and, and you know, there's the one, of the one, of the kind of the irony in all this, if it's a terrible word to use, is that the more we see of these anti-Semitic um, incidents around the world, the more Israelis will say, you know, number one, we don't care about public opinion because it's never going to be with us. And number two is, you know, no one is actually going to stand by us. The United States will to a degree, and we can talk about that later. Um, but this has to do with how they prosecute uh, the war inside Gaza. And in my view, everything that you see there has to be looked at uh, in terms of, of you know, uh, uh, how Israel continues when the world is condemning them for some of the humanitarian crises and some of the strikes in Gaza. And uh, as I've noted over and over again, no one seems to Understand, I've worked with the Israelis for years, uh, uh, and they don't care. And that's okay. I'm not, it's not even a judgment I'm making. I'm just saying that when it comes to certain operations that, that they undertake, they will take our counsel and they're going to go their own way. And in my view, this incidents like that, particularly in Russia, that's going to only kind of steal their, their resolve. It, is it accurate to understand something like this happening in Russia uh, as really only being possible with the tacit? you know, consent of the government of the Absolutely. Kremlin or yeah, 100%. Okay. Nothing happens in, in Russia with that. There's, there's no spontaneous demonstrations. This was completely, I mean, obviously I don't have access to any of the intelligence, but I cannot imagine yeah, sure. uh, that something like this occurs without um, people, uh, you know, in the security services, uh, either stirring it up or um, uh, certainly turning a blind eye. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, Russian security services control the Russian state, um, control everything that happens there. And so, uh, I have no doubt. And again, this, this, you know, this kind of goes, I mean, look, I mean, Vladimir Putin has been hosting Hamas leaders, um, uh, talking to the Iranians. I mean, this goes into the whole narrative in this kind of new world order in which, um, uh, uh Russia is going to take advantage of some of, uh, of kind of the, uh, uh, kind of the mess in the Middle East. Um, so no doubt in my mind that they, you know, you know, it's, the Russia is not behind this. Russia is not behind Hamas's attack. Um, uh, let's not kind of go, uh, you know, down that road at all. Um, but they're certainly going to take advantage of it because Vladimir Putin gets up every day and he's, you know, it's, it's a zero sum game is how can I screw the United States? Um, and this kind of, you know, handed to him on a silver platter. The first thing I thought of when I saw it was, 
hold on a minute. Wasn't the their Putin's entire premise of invading Ukraine to denazify it? Well, I mean, the, no, nothing has to be make a lot of sense. So, right. <laughs> right. Nothing. Nothing has to make sense. But I think that what, one of the really interesting, you know, and and you know, I love reading the Israeli press. I mean, I you know I read Haaretz every day. On the Jerusalem Post as well, so from different kind of ideological sides. But there's going to be a reckoning within Israel in a lot, about a lot. And, we, you know, certainly the intelligence failures, obviously the enormous political dysfunction, Netanyahu calling all the heads of the security services in Israel the deep state. But, but Israel's Russia policy is going to, to have, it deserves some scrutiny um, because they were never able to kind of break um, this kind of little romance that Bibi had with Putin. And it, it certainly seems to not have paid off in any sense whatsoever, and quite the contrary. Okay, let's turn to um, the Biden administration. Um, I noted this, I think, a couple of weeks ago, uh, that he is facing intense blowback within within his coalition for his support for Israel. Um, according to Gallup, his approval rating among Democrats fell to 75% last week, down 11 points from September. The young liberal wing of the party has shifted toward sympathizing with Palestinians more than Israelis in recent years. And according to Gallup, when Democrats were asked if their sympathies are more with the Israelis or the Palestinians in March of this year, 49% said Palestinians compared to 38% for Israel. And that marked the first time Democrats had more support for Palestinians in the history of this particular polling. Um, but young people who will be crucial to a Biden reelect are the most critical about his stance on Israel. In a Harvard uh, Caps-Harris poll, only 52% of 18 to 24-year-olds said they uh, side with Israel more than Hamas compared to 84% in the general population. 13% of this demographic think Hamas is a terrorist group that rules through fear, but they side more with them. 65% of people in the same age group did say that Israel has a responsibility to protect its citizens from the attacks by retaliating against Hamas, compared to 80, 88% in the general population. Uh, 62% said they could launch airstrikes on terrorist targets in populated areas compared to 84% in the general population. But the most stark number from that poll is that 26%, over a quarter of people aged 18 to 24, said that Israel should be, quote, ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians compared to 15% of the general population. So how are you thinking about Liz, the age divisions within the Democratic Party on Israel-Hamas, and how important this contingent of voters is to a to a Biden reelect. Um, I want to be very honest with you and and Mark and all of your listeners. My my brain, I think, just fried into like ten different places. So um, I, I already feel uh, quite rambly today. So so bear with me while I while I react to those. You know. Fairly, fairly jarring numbers. As a now, I'm now I'm very squarely in my in my camp of being a, a moderate uh, democratic political operative. Um, I think the first place I will go um, is back to the data for the 2022 midterms and the way that we saw young people carry Democrats across many a finish line around the country, up and down the ballot. And 
I cannot wait to continue to follow this, again, challenging topic, but important one, because what it will come down to is a lot of what we saw in 2020 when people were deciding, do I vote for Donald Trump again, or do I go with Joe Biden? I don't love either of them. How am I feeling? I mean, the, the, the voter, the identity of a voter, I mean, you go through something so meaningful and magical and, um, it's like a full body experience for a lot of people where you actually have to make these tough decisions there at the end of a long and grueling campaign cycle when you've been pummeled with direct mail and TikTok and, you know, attack ads and what have you. The reason why I paint that kind of broad picture is because for the young people who all registered to vote for the first time in the 2022 midterms because Roe versus Wade was top of list, whether it is women's rights, whether it is income inequality, whether it is student loan forgiveness, whatever that issue was that got you to get involved in the 2022 midterm as a Gen Z or as a millennial, you know, what have you. Will that issue become more or less important than voting for your candidate based on foreign policy? This issue of what is happening right now on the international stage and uh, obviously around the world, it is so at the top of everyone's mind right now. We are still, I mean, are we a year? Yeah, we're a year out from the election. Where will people be in their brain space one year from now? Because when you go to vote, especially for president, but all up and down the ticket, what are the issues that will be most meaningful to you? Where will we be in the Trump indictment? Where will we be, you know, where will the economy be at that time? And will those issues be more or less important? So I paint that, again, very broad backdrop to say, well, these numbers are jarring for me again, with all of my identifiers out there um, for this episode, we have a long time until we get to the election. So that, so maybe I'll just stop there for now and either let you react or if Mark has something else before I go into 20 other different directions here. Yeah, I am curious about Mark's thoughts on the degree to which foreign policy tends to matter to voters, because typically it doesn't, uh, unless, unless it's really intense. And you know, some other people have pointed out that we never saw this kind of a reaction uh, when Syria was murdering so many of its own people. We never saw this kind of a reaction when 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 other uh, places, other lots of violence against oppressed groups and other places were murdered. And what, we never saw this kind of uprising, especially among young voters in America. So, Mark, what makes this different? Do you think it has the kind of you know sticking power? Uh, to 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 hold a lot of sway in in voters' attitudes, and uh, I don't I don't understand why why this why now and not when I don't know how many how many people in Syria were so half a million half a million people Assad. died in so, Syria. Um, ordinarily, Americans okay. don't give a rat's behind about foreign policy. I mean, I, right. I really defer to Liz on this, but that's just always my sense. Um, uh, but here's the thing, and, and this is where I, I I will ask a question to Liz. I'll make a comment, but th- this is where you know my uh, uh, blue collar, New Jersey, nasty background with what I want to say. For this. <laughs> Let it rip, Mark. Go effing ahead and vote for Trump, you dumb whatever. I mean, That's are you right. kidding me? Right. Someone who is going to enact a Muslim ban, who is the most, in his, his view, and arguably, when I say pro-Israel president, pro-right-wing Israeli president, um, uh, right. someone who, uh, frankly, in so many of his comments, is a raging anti-Semite, 
And so, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't even, I, I, I mean, I just, I, I don't even know what, what to say um, on this. And so, so, you know, if, if Muslim Americans um, want to kind of uh, jump in and, um, and vote for Trump, you know, I would say have at it. Now, that's not what a Democratic operative <laughs> would say, because it's really important um, about this voting block. But, but good Lord, I mean, someone who is uh, kind of viscerally does not like, does not care. And, and here's the other thing, the Abraham Accords and the criticism of it, which I was very vocal about, is that it left out the Palestinians. And this was, Jared, this was Jared Kushner's baby. And so I see, you know, when I, I saw that polling and I saw that, you know, of 40 percent of, of, of Muslim Americans were going to vote for Trump now. Have at it and see what you get. Now, I will ask Liz, because this is obviously why I am not a Democratic operative, not that I don't vote Democratic, <laughs> but there's probably a more mature and better way to look at this and to say, OK, because we do need to mobilize, you know, uh, the base on this and we do need young vo- voters to come out. And so. Liz, I would, I guess I would, my question to you is, you know, okay, okay, with this in mind, now what? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, the zillion dollar question, right? There, you can't even put a price tag on that one because of how critically important it is, not only to the narrative of right now, but for this, you know, these 365 days we have coming up. I mean, I just, I I cannot believe it is November. We are one year from the election. That's really hitting me hard um, (laughs) during this episode. And, and there, there is so much to be done on so many fronts, but if we're looking at the here and now, um, here's what I'll say. So first of all, Mark, thank you. It means honestly to me, um, and, and I'm sure to a lot of listeners so much coming from, from your lips to God's ears, right? You know, Trump, wants to deport Muslims <laughs> out of the United States. He said Period. that. This is not, we're he not, has we're not said wondering it. He about has it. He said, said it. it. No, I'm not saying that as a Democrat. I'm not saying that as, you know, anything like this has been said. This is not fake news, like out in the open, period, full stop. It has been said. Okay, so that's that's number one. I There is a reason. Um, there are many reasons. Um, I got off social media about a, a, a week or two after the terrorist attack of October the 7th because I, I was struggling so, so much to, and, and again, I, I, or not again, I, I recognize that it is a privilege that I have the opportunity to step away of the gross reality of what is happening in Israel. I know so many people do not have that opportunity. So I want to say I have the privilege of stepping away. And I did that for myself for various reasons. But something that really struck me at the beginning when I was still on, um, as one of my friends called it, as the posting police, because I thought I could respond to every meme and every article and teach everybody everything or give my opinions, and that was going to change the world. Um, you know, And all it did was make me uh, quite ill. But there was a meme at the beginning of all of this that I think a lot of uh, non-Jews in particular, Jews as well, felt really comfortable posting and reposting and sharing and you know advertising that context is deeply important in this moment. And there was a lot of criticism about this meme because Zionists and, and others were really talking about, you don't need context to be able to say what happened on October 7th was an egregious, horrific, horrendous terrorist attack, and we should all be on the side of beating Hamas. You can still be for Palestinian sovereignty. You can still support the children of Gaza and all of the humanitarian efforts that can and must be done there, okay? We can and all and should support all of those things, but you do not need context to know that more than 200 people were murdered at a peace music festival, and anybody behind that attack 
should be held responsible and must be held responsible, period. I believe very strongly that when social media in particular changed the argument of of what this attack really was to talk about, you need the historical context. You need to know what's happening in the region. If you're not a Middle East expert, how dare you voice your opinion about what's happening? And it really scared people from being a part of this fight. And it took away the opportunity for people to use this as a learning moment to become an educated voter, an educated citizen, an educated activist. And I say all of those things because if we are talking about young people in the Democratic Party who rose up, you know, in honor of gay rights and marching with the black community and so many other things, and then to say the Palestinian people are an oppressed people, I don't know that anybody is disagreeing with that. I got to say, like, no one is out here saying the Palestinians have it the best right? I don't think anybody is saying that. And if they are, you know, politicology listeners, please come come find me and, and course correct. But I really just want to drive the point home that these young voters are quite confused, many of them. And I'm not saying they're dumb. I'm not saying they don't know what's going on. Like, I am still a young person myself. But when you get all of your information, Mark, you nailed it. When it is TikTok 100% as your news source, and it goes from day one after this terrorist attack. So we're talking, say, like October 8 and 9. Okay, I'll give it two days, right? That people were understanding what happened on these kibbutzim and at the music festival, you know, what's happening with the babies and the women. I mean, insane and horrific videos and footage and pictures and stories. It took no more than two days for that to completely turn on its head. And the way that social media was able to take these young activists and I'm not going to say brainwash, I'm not even going to give them you know, that luxury, but it reframed the story for them that you have to understand a full scope of this history to form your opinion, and no one is teaching the history at the same time. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're teaching a, a, a completely bastardized a version, version of history. Of I mean, That's yeah, the, the, it's, <laughs> I, I will say it, Liz, they don't know what they're talking about because- Hillary Clinton said they don't know what they're talking about. If you don't, oh, if you I don't, can't wait to talk about like, that. Yeah, the, the, I'm, I'm the, very the interested. The number of people, in the number of people throwing around words like decolonization, genocide, ceasefire, war crimes, free Palestine. You actually don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You've never set foot in the region. You probably couldn't point to it on a map, and you're it, you. It it's just it's it's insane. But to the TikTok point, you're right. Um, I think over half of Gen Z now gets their, they use it as their primary search engine. And we've talked before about TikTok. It's a Chinese-owned, essentially, a Chinese-owned entity. They control the algorithm. They control what gets boosted, what gets amplified. Uh, there's an information war layer to this fight. And Mark, I'm really curious about how how you see that unfolding. And I'll just offer a couple of other data points for the table. We've seen calls for, I'm going to put in air quotes again, a ceasefire at protests. Uh, uh, Democratic reps Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, Summer Lee, Andre Carson, Delia Ramirez. Uh, they introduced a ceasefire resolution in Congress. The White House has refused to call for a ceasefire. Um, they've begun pressuring Israel to call for humanitarian pauses. Uh, but Hillary Clinton, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, pushed forcefully against calls for a ceasefire in a conversation uh, with Nora O'Donnell last week, and we have a clip of that. Let me just roll that. People who 
are calling for a ceasefire now do not understand hamas that is not possible it would be such a gift to hamas because they would spend whatever time there was a ceasefire in effect rebuilding their uh, armaments you know creating stronger positions to be able to fend off uh an eventual um assault by the israelis so we're in a very different world. I don't think it had to be the world we're in, but that's where we are, and we've got to figure our way uh, forward through it. So just to underscore the danger that could come from a ceasefire, when a Hamas spokesperson was on Lebanese TV, he said that they would repeat the October 7 massacre time and again, quote, one million times if we need to until we end the occupation, end quote. There is no remorse here. There is no, the, the brutality was the point. Uh, when when the reporter asked him if he meant the occupation of Gaza, he replied, "No, all of Israel." So let there be let there be no doubt. My question to you, Mark, is how important and how do you win the information war that is now so seemingly important to who gets aid, how much, and when, who sides with who, how much political support do you have in your own country? to stand by your allies because this is we know this is part of the Russian playbook we know that they've been trying to split american public opinion on support for ukraine this seems like a much amplified version of that information war uh and i just wonder how you see that landscape sure and so first of all israel is losing the information war you know we call it information operations and 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 they're losing because of al jazeera which is watched you know throughout the arab world um, and they are using terms such as, you know, genocide and, and war crimes very freely. There is so much disinformation out there, whether it's, you know, kind of now these new, you know, pseudo open source OSINT accounts. Um, and, and so so I think that there, there's two things on this. One is from Israel's side, uh, they're trying. I mean, you see them come out. So, you know, for example, yesterday they released signals intelligence. It was actually they ex- exposed their sources and methods and released a cut of Hamas talking to one of the hospital administrators. Basically, Hamas is stealing gas from the hospital. Interesting. Um, same thing how Israel has put forth, uh, has put out some of the debriefs of some of the, the Hamas operatives, um, again, to kind of show the barbarity uh, and what was happening. So Israel is trying on this. Um, there's, there's no doubt about it. So, uh, but, but I think Israel understands that uh, you know, perhaps they don't have an unlimited, you know, runway space on this. And and the U.S. has given them quite a bit now. Ordinarily, and, you know, again, someone who has lived in the region and has been around, I mean, I, I was on the, you know, Syrian-Lebanese border when Israel was bombing um, uh, Beirut, you know, back in 2006. Uh, ordinarily, the U.S. will give a little bit of runway. And after a week or so, we say, cut it out. It's done. Um, we have not done that this time. Uh, but I think that um, what is going to be interesting, and, and Israel is certainly understands kind of, kind of they're losing this, you know, internationally. But at some point, um, and I think we're there already, you know, they're going to try to push back. But, it, you know, this you have to understand Israelis believe this is an existential threat. And, and let me tell you why. First of all, it's the equivalent of 47,000 Americans dying in several hours. And uh, and as we've talked on Morning Joe, when I go on there, Joe Scarborough and I said that, you know, if this if Mexico did this to us and we rolled tanks into Mexico City, we actually wouldn't be invading a capital because it wouldn't exist anymore. Um, and this is just a fact. So that's that's kind of the first part. But the, the second part, too, where, again, where Israel has to care about the information operations part, but what ultimately they're going to do what they believe they have to do is they've lost the aura of deterrence. And so Israel, you know, 
both for their people, for Israelis, believed in the kind of infallibility, you know, the, the all-powerful Israeli military, the IDF and the intelligence services. And, the, and their Arab adversaries, their enemies also thought this. That has all been shattered. So the second after 10-7 happened, my first uh, uh, reaction was, you know, they are going to unleash extraordinary violence on the people of Gaza. Um, they have a different uh, calculation of civilian casualties, what we call CIVCAS. Uh, they're not deliberately trying to kill civilians, but if, if a Hamas high-value target and Hamas operatives are in a civilian area, they will take the strike. Um, uh, uh, and they're probably not going to stop, even with all the, quote, kind of babysitting comments. I know I'm all over the place here, but it drove me crazy when the anonymous U.S. officials were babysitting. Well, the Israelis were saying they were getting annoyed. I have tons of friends in Israel, you know, uh, former security service officials, and they're like, this is getting a little irritating. We didn't – no one babysat you after 9-11. And so ultimately – the Israelis are going to unleash fire. And, and why is this important? And I, this sounds, I sound so kind of sterile and, and you know, um, not caring for, for kind of the, the human cost of this. But who's watching this right now? The Lebanese prime minister, who has said very clearly, I want no part of that in Gaza. They remember in 06 when the Israelis were flattening parts of Beirut and Tyr. And so there is a deterrence factor in Israel unleashing a very violent response. And I think a lot of people just don't understand that. And certainly, um, uh, you know, if, if, if we were in Israel's shoes, 47,000 Americans died in several hours, not 2000 on 9-11, um, you know, Lord knows what we have, would have done in, in response. And I, so, you know, uh, uh, I guess overall, you know, I'm rambling here, but overall is the, the IO wars are important. Israel has to push back when they can. Um, but it's, you know, and, and, uh, uh, you will hear going one quick thing about the ceasefire, just, just, I mean, the ceasefire is, is, is nonsensical. Nobody in the counterterrorism world, in the U.S. military, anyone thinks this is a good idea. Ceasefires in the Middle East are not hours. They are days or weeks. Israel cannot afford that. Now, I think operationally, um, they probably could, uh, uh, they would be okay with a humanitarian pause. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that, which is several hours worth of, of uh, you know, uh, kind of reduced fighting. You might see that um, coming forward to do just enough. And, you know, look, President Biden has to, you know, I always call it, he's dancing through the raindrops on this. You know, you know, he has to balance the kind of humanitarian concerns with allowing Israel to do what they have to do. Um, I actually firmly believe Biden, Biden actually thinks this. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's been around a hell of a long time in foreign policy. He's a very, very, been a very strong friend of Israel. So there's, there's, a, there's, there's, go ahead, Liz. I was just going to say that, um, that answer made me think of a couple of things, Ron, if I can just say a few more things. Um, so first of all, we can all say that there are a lot of reasons why Hillary Clinton did not become president. But when I see the ceasefire comment, it just like brought it back up for me. <laughs> this is why she, she couldn't win the campaign <laughs> because she will say something like this and everything she says, people are like, you're wrong. You're awful. It's horrible. They don't then play the rest of the clip where all she is doing is demonstrating her sheer knowledge, her unbelievable understanding of these issues. She is like too smart for her own good in that she will say whatever the F she wants because she knows it so deep in her bones what the truth is. And like, she's not running for shit anymore. Right. So she's like, I'm just going to say what the truth is. I was first lady. I was a United States Senator. I was secretary of state. I was a candidate for president. Like this remarkable woman. And like, I didn't work on the Clinton campaign. Like, you know, she wasn't my, you know, she wasn't my Messiah, but she is so brilliant. And so when she's speaking, 
nobody's going to like what she says because of how she says it and the way she says it. And so like, I'm glad that we talked about this comment and Mark, thank you for bringing your uh, academic and also real world uh, experience to, to that comment. Cause I know that's getting a lot of buzz right now and, and probably still will be when, when this episode is out. Um, also similarly, Joe Biden was at a fundraiser in Minnesota this week. Um, there was a heckler in the crowd. Obviously everybody who goes to a fundraiser has to be vetted. They know exactly who's in the room. Um, you're certainly not asking on a vet report, you know, where do you stand on what's happening in the Middle East? Um, but you would assume it's all, it's all friendlies, um, in the room. And, uh, one of the rabbis who was there at the fundraiser started chanting for a ceasefire and Joe Biden to his credit, because he is very good when he is off the cuff and just speaking directly to a voter, a heckler, a human being. He is, this is where he shines. He did talk about Mark, to your point to this, you know, I am asking for a humanitarian pause and he did take not credit. I, I don't know that people are really taking credit for things right now, but he is saying, I'm the one talking to BB directly. Like I'm with you guys. Like I am asking for the pause. I, I do believe in this. So that was, um, that came out of the pool report yesterday, which I found to be interesting. Two final, very quick things. Um, Mark, you asked the question about like, you know, what, if you're thinking about what's happening here in light of the 2024 election cycle, if you are thinking about this purely as a political operative for a second. And, and I'll be very honest. It is something that I have tried hard not to do for the last month that everybody, when they talk about the politics of this war and Democrats or anti-Semites or the Republicans or, you know, warmonger, you know, all of the phrases I have said to any person, if you are already bringing politics into this, um, this experience of what is happening, it is a cheap shot. The bodies are not all buried. We don't know. We don't know what is happening because we are not on the ground and we are taking our information from news sources that we can't always trust, which I know, Ron, is something that you and I talked about. It's very hard to say that out loud. Um, but I, I just want to say there are Arabs, there are Muslims who live in Israel before October 7th, I would say happily and peacefully. They choose to live in Israel. They fight in the IDF. And so if I am trying to get political about this situation, the closer we get to the election, am I bringing over Arab or Muslim soldiers who fought on the front lines to talk with these communities in America? That is where my brain would start to go as we move into like Q2, Q3 of next year to see if this is really a group that needs, you know, kind of their, um, their surrogate or someone to come and talk to them who looks like them and feels like them, you know, just starting to have those conversations. The last thing I will say, and I promise school, the children, right? School, the children as much as you can. Last thing I'll say, if you are a Democrat and you are mad at Joe Biden, go ahead, be mad at him. It's fine. That means that you are involved and engaged in the political process, and I, for one, love to see it. But think about why you are angry. Learn about why you are angry. Listen, learn, talk to people. Why is he doing what he's doing? I'll say, you know, and, and all of my opinions I express here are all my own, but I will say this. I am so proud of our president, and I am not saying this with any of my identifiers. I am saying this as an American, as a human, we are so fortunate that we have a statesman 
in the Oval Office right now with decades of foreign policy experience, who, by the way, for the first time in a long time, we do not have a president who is doing something that is politically expedient. He is losing in the polls by doing what is right for the people in the region as best as he can. And he's losing voters and he's losing support. And I have so many Democratic friends, Republican friends too, who are saying, oh, Biden's going to flip. He's going to flip flop his position when he sees that the polls are tanking. He is not. He is not. And I feel so privileged, again, to be able to say, this is a man that I know and I know his character and I know that his age, I'm bringing it back to the politics because that's what we do here. His age is an asset because he is there as a statesman gathering his team to only do what is right and not what is good for the polls. And I just, I had to say that. So thank you. Cue the choir. <laughs> I just I had to get that off the chest. I never, I never seen preacher Liz quite so. Uh, She's coming. She's coming. She's ready for those twenty twenty four presidential elections, my man. Thank you. Yeah, you know, this gives me an idea for another for a separate episode where we just unpack all of these idiotic chants that 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 people don't understand what they the, the implications of them. Like, That's right. uh, I think you know what what is implied by all of them. I think we need to do something like that. I want to make sure we spend a little bit of time on Iran here uh, because this is where this is where the shit gets um, real scary uh, to me. So on Tuesday, uh, Yemen's Houthi rebels claimed responsibility for missile and drone attacks targeting Israel. If you don't know where Yemen is on the map, by the way, picture Saudi Arabia, bottom left corner, right, right underneath Saudi Arabia over there, in the Red Sea. Um, Israeli fighter jets. And its new aero missile defense system shot down the attacks. The Houthis had been suspected of an attack earlier this month, uh, targeting shipping lanes in the Red Sea. Very important. The U.S. Navy shot down those projectiles, and that attack was the first time shots were fired by the U.S. in this conflict. Uh, the Houthi have held Yemen's capital since 2014. Um, they claimed three attacks on Israel in a military statement. Uh, the attacks drawn Iran even closer into the conflict because the Iranian government has long sponsored the Houthis and Hamas, along with uh, the Lebanese militia slash terrorist group Hezbollah. Um, the Houthis slogan has long been, and I'm quoting, God is greatest, death to America, death to Israel, curse the Jews, victory to Islam, end quote. <laughs> but with Iran's backing, they may have the firepower now to back it. Iran has denied uh, arming the Houthis, but Independent experts, Western nations, even UN experts have traced components seized aboard uh, detained Houthi vessels to Iran. So, Mark, we need you to uh, talk about the pressure uh, an increasing threat from Yemen could put on Israeli defenses and probably sort of give us a tour around the neighborhood, the very not rough neighborhood that Israel is facing now and what a big deal it would be um, if, if Iran sort of enters the fray here. So let me just kind of start with, um, and, and by the way, I, I agree with Liz that, uh, you know, I think we're very lucky that, that Joe Biden is president. Alternative would have been uh, uh, disastrous. Uh, and again, as when I mentioned before on President Trump, you don't even know what he stands for. I, I was kind of contradicting myself saying that, you know, he wants to ban Muslims. Um, he considers himself extremely pro-Israel, but also he's, he also has espoused a lot of anti-Semitic 
um, tropes. And so who the hell knows what he is? So think, you know, the idea that Biden is in office, I think that is without a doubt a very good thing. That said, I also, uh, you know, and especially when I, you know, I, I seem to, you know, gather the ire of the administration when I go on Morning Joe and I criticize the administration because their Iran policy has been a mess. Um, and, you know, when it comes down to it, they were so fixated on kind of, you know, a new Iranian nuclear deal that I think we really did uh, ignore, um, you know, Iranian bad behavior. You know, we delisted the Houthis as a terrorist entity. Now, there was a reason to do that because of humanitarian assistance that needed to get in, but um, uh, not entirely helpful. And what you've seen now, and I don't understand this, and I've been very critical of it in public, is, you know, the Iranians via their proxies in Iraq and Syria are repeatedly attacking U.S. military bases in those two countries. Uh, and we have responded once, uh, uh, you know, recently um, in a very limited strike. And so, you know, there is, I think there is so much concern about things escalating that we actually have uh, uh, kind of put ourselves in a box. And in some ways, you do have to escalate to de-escalate. And so I've been surprised that we have not hit back on everything, you know, such as, uh, you know, Iranian proxies uh, uh, in the region and, and Syria and um, uh, and Iraq. Now, there's two U.S. Uh, Navy carrier groups off the coast um, of Israel slash Lebanon, the Red Sea. And that's good. And that is certainly a, a deterrent message um, towards Iran as well. Uh, uh, one of the things I would just kind of throw out there. And, 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 and so, you know, there's so many things that could kick things off. You know, tomorrow, Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, is going to give a big speech. Everyone's looking at this. What is that going to mean? And anything he says is coming right from the Iranians. Is he, is he going to get involved or not? And so far, kind of the conventional wisdom is, you know, as as Iran may lose a proxy in Hamas, they're not going to want to do the same with Hezbollah. So so while there is while the north, that second front is boiling in northern Israel, um, it, it probably won't kick off. But then you, you do have worries of, of miscalculation. Um, and so, you know, the, the U.S. is in a precarious position, but I don't think we've taken an aggressive enough stand. And, you know, you know the Houthis fired a ballistic missile that went from Yemen and, and you know, actually tried to hit a lot and they've hit Jordan and Egypt accidentally, so not particularly accurate. But at some point, there's going to have to be strikes. Someone, whether it's the U.S., Saudi Arabia, or Israel, is going to have to strike uh, in Yemen against the Houthis. And and I'm afraid we have not deterred Iran enough. You know, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has been finger wagging. You know, stop doing this. But at some point, a lot of us are like, all right, we need to take action, and we have to be a little a little stronger because it's not necessarily uh, uh, you know working. And I think there is there's a morality piece here, and people openly say this. Well, it's going to take several U.S. servicemen to be killed for us to really hit back hard against um, you know uh, Iranian bases uh, or proxies in, in several of these countries. I think that you know that's too late. So here's here's what I'm wondering. I speculated a couple of weeks ago that the reason uh, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, sort of downplayed, or it seemed seemed like he was downplaying the degree to which Iran was involved. Uh, in the October seven attack, and and uh, and the administration has um, has has sort of not talked very much about Iran. You've noticed that in 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 an interview, Biden was asked, "What's your message to Iran?" He said one word: "Don't." Kamala Harris was just on sixty Minutes. They asked her the same questions. He said the same thing: "Don't." No, no expand. They they they. There's not much. Uh, messaging you're getting from the White House about its policy toward Iran. And one of the reasons I've wondered, speculated about the reason that they've downplayed Iran's involvement is that that it's, in task, it's an admission that the Iran policy has failed. The Obama-era policy uh, that some people would characterize, I think, accurately as appeasement has failed. 
And that was one of Joe Biden's signature foreign policies coming into office. He carried the same thing, wanted to continue what Obama started. That would be an admission that the policy has failed, but it also would mean you have to have a new policy. And they, they don't have one and they're not prepared to have one. And by admitting that, it means a lot of options are off the table. 100% right. Um, and by the way, this isn't an easy. Right. No, 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 easy no one answer. is saying this is easy, but it, it, but it is the reality of where we are now. 100%. And I think a lot of us in the kind of in the counterterrorism world um, were very uncomfortable uh, with, with Biden's policy. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, when you the that whole kind of, and of course the Republicans play this up and it gets silly, but the, you know, the release of funds um, to, you know, to South Korea, uh, uh, you know, for the, for the hostage deal. I mean, you know, of course, you know, well, the Iranians haven't accessed those funds. So we really weren't kind of, you know, you know, sponsor, you know, we weren't providing uh, the Iranians, uh, you know, money for, for terrorism purposes. I mean, you had, I mean, Tim Scott, of all, of all people should know better when he's, when he says there's blood on Biden's hand. I mean, that's asinine. Um, but it does go to show that, that their Iran policy has, has failed. And, and I think, you know, great leaders will own their mistakes. Um, and I think that, you know, we're going to have to at some point pivot on this. And the, you know, the other point, uh, is, uh, and you see, you see this talk in Israel as well, is that, you know, at some point, you know, this, the Iranian issue is going to have to be dealt with. And so, uh, are, is the chances of a U.S. Iran direct conflict greater now? Sure, but this is based on Iranian behavior. I mean, you know, we, we can't wish for a policy that really doesn't make any sense anymore. And and you know, one last piece, Ron. You know, the, I thought again, and I, I I am I praise the administration when I think they've done a good job. In the case of downplaying Iranian involvement, it's it's bordering on ludicrous. And just let me kind of let me kind of go through my thinking on this. Access to the classified information. There was a 3,000-man terrorist army that trained, was provided logistics. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, there was obviously a lot of operational planning inside Gaza, but training that probably existed outside the region, region too. You have the IRGC, which are the, that's the Iran Revolutionary Guard Corps. That's the paramilitary arm of the Iranians who support um, Hamas. And, but the administration is actually coming out and saying they have, you know, and just taking pains to say they have no evidence that Iran was involved in this. That's ludicrous. Now, an absent, well, it's ludicrous in the sense of it insinuates I mean, that. Let me ask you a quick question. So, the, Are there hang gliding schools in Gaza? Right. And so, you know, so the absence of evidence they're saying is, um, uh, is, is evidence enough. And my re- retort to that, I was quoted in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, and my old outfit is very, not really happy with me. Um, but I said, this is an intelligence failure of the United States. Like, how the F did we miss this? It is a massive failure. We outsourced all collection on Hamas to the Israelis. Um, uh, but ultimately, to say that somehow Iran is not culpable of this is really based on just, I think, abject fear uh, in the U.S. And, and kind of trying to hang on to an Iran policy. Uh, and so, um, to me, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm, I am very hawkish on some things when it comes to national security. Um, uh, I defended the administration on a lot of other things, but on this one, I think they're, they're wrong. And they they end up discrediting themselves when they keep kind of harping on, well, you know, the Iranians didn't know about it. The IRGC, the paramilitary arm trains Hamas. That's an intelligence organization. They have recruited Hamas operatives. I'm sure. How did someone in Iran, are you telling me nobody in Iran knew this was coming? I mean, that defies credulity in my view. And so it doesn't, it doesn't do any good. The smarter thing the administration would say is we're still looking into this. It remains to be seen. Um, uh, and again, when you say that we, we, you know, between us and the Israelis, we missed this. Well, maybe our intelligence collection ain't that great. 
And so, uh, I don't know, this is something that, that, uh, kind of bothers me in the sense of, uh, I think it's almost a politicization of intelligence when you have the DNI briefers go out on the Hill and really downplay this. And, you know, the, 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 uh, I've had responses. I've talked to people within the DNI and on the Hill as well. And they said they went way too far in, in, in pushing the notion that Iran didn't know. All right. We are, uh, up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week. It feels like we're leaving so much um, off the table. There's just more than we can possibly get to, but I uh, I feel like this was really useful to do today. There's uh, always something that we're watching under the radar that we didn't get to. Liz, what did you bring today? Um, well, the first is the um, just eyes on the New Jersey Senate race. For Bob Menendez's seat, had to give a hat tip there to my uh, fellow New Jerseyan here on on the podcast today. Um, but I, I would love to actually talk about that more in depth another time. What I do want to say is that at the end of this month, COP twenty eight will begin. COP stands for the Conference of Parties. It is the UN's climate change conference, and it is uh, taking place in Dubai. And I think it is just going to be wild watching all of these climate negotiators from all 192 recognized UN countries descending upon the Middle East to talk about fossil fuels and the loss and damage fund and so many very, very critical topics. And so um, that will begin um, four weeks from today, November the 30th, and definitely something to watch how the world will come together to talk about uh, the climate crisis um, amidst, you know, what is happening in the region. Mark, what'd you bring? Two things. Uh, one is something that is not reported, but in my old world is very much on, on, certainly on my mind and others, is the under-the-table cooperation that exists between Israel and the Arab states. And that's in the intelligence sphere. And so, uh, you know, we, we, we hear, we, you know, the Arab street is always, you know, the, there's the mention of the Arab street being inflamed. Um, that to me is lazy when the media reports on that, because number one, you know, every country controls the mosques. So they will do this. They will let people blow off steam because they're worried about their own internal stability. But what you have is relationships between the Israel and Jordan, uh, Israel, the Palestinian Authority, security services, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Israel and the UAE and the intelligence sphere. And that is still holding and holding very strongly. And so that is, you know, when we talk about the amount of anger about what's happening in Gaza. If we see those break, that's a big deal. I don't think it's going to happen at all. The, the Saudi defense minister was just here. The Saudis, incredibly, have been very muted on this. So, so that's what I'm, I'm, I'm always looking at the security cooperation uh, under the table. The second piece, which is fascinating to me, is the role of Qatar. So Qatar has been this darling now of, uh, of, of kind of the United States. We have a big U.S. military base there. I think half my old colleagues are working for the Qatari government, which is gross, but that's separate. Um, but but Qatar is now kind of the flavor of the month, the most attractive, you know, uh, uh, Arab state. But I think their hypocrisy, and, and you know, and 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 it, it, it even we should question, you know, they gave safe haven to the Hamas leaders, and there was a there was kind of a growing call, certainly in Israel, and there will be in the United States, um, is to question what is Qatar doing when you have you know uh, uh, Khalid Mishal and others, the Hamas leadership living there. And it's particularly interesting. And so they're going to have to do something about this. Um, and throw also in mind that the Israelis have already announced Shin Bet has created a, in essence, an assassination unit and the Mossad will as well. And they're going to track down and kill everybody involved. And and so ultimately, um, Qatar has. Does everyone know like what, what Shin Bet is and Mossad? I don't know if you want to explain. 
Yeah, explain that real quick. That the interior, the interior, uh, sorry, the the uh, the internal security service. The the U.S. equivalent is the FBI, and Mossad is the external service. Um, and they are going to track down, without a doubt, uh, uh, everyone involved in this. Uh, a lot of the leaders live in 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 Doha, in Qatar, and so you know how the U.S., Israel, and others in the international community deal with this state, which you know, you know, right now they're important because they're involved in hostage negotiations, but. I think there's a lot of questions on uh, uh, on on Cutter's role in this. And again, they were giving safe haven to the Hamas leadership, who just announced, as you said, it was either this morning or last night, that they're still dedicated to the destruction of Israel. That ain't going to fly. Yeah, uh, certainly in the U.S. Congress, nor should it. Yeah, and just as a chaser to that, I want to remind listeners that between 2001 and 2021, Cutter um, donated 4.7 billion dollars to U.S. colleges. Billion with a billion with a B, which uh, the largest recipients are some of America's most prestigious institutions. Cornell's so, got a campus there. Yep. 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 All right. Let's head over to Politicology Plus and talk about the shadow primary to become the Democratic nominee if Joe Biden, for whatever reason, doesn't make it to election day next year. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Liz? Um, you, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, so I'm uh, again okay. uh, fully. Cool. Catch you next time. So if anybody has um, anything interesting to say or share or yell at me about or you know anything, um, get in touch with Politicology. I'd, I'd yeah. love to hear from you. There we go. We'll forge you the good ones. <laughs> Thank you, Ron. Mark. What about you? So I am fortunately or unfortunately still on Twitter or X or whatever it is at M Polymer. And I, uh, I certainly kind of tweet prolifically. And one of the funny things the other day was on an MSNBC hit with Yasmin Vesugi, and they actually put up a tweet of mine. And but my 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 Twitter picture is me at the beach wearing this Red Sox bucket hat, and I just it was it's the funniest picture ever. And several hundred thousand people saw that on TV, and it was ludicrous. <laughs> that's that's excellent. And I will just remind listeners of your really excellent book uh, about leadership, which is which is sort of told through these beautiful stories from the field, um, exemplifying uh, really important qualities of leadership. So um, we'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, We love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.